Elvis. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. I bent my gun a circle to shoot around the hill. Got up early one morning a hunting for the gold. The trees is in full blossom and a terrible storm of snow, snow, snow. Well, I bent my gun a circle to shoot around the hill. The stories about NBA player Lawrence and Wright are insane. He went from signing million-dollar contracts to being almost entirely broke in just a few years. He was questioned by the FBI about his connection to a Mexican drug cartel. He was the victim in a murder case that went unsolved for almost a decade. And during that time, cops and the feds chased down dead ends and bad leads all while new details slowly leaked out. Details that, when they finally fell into place, revealed a shocking picture of incredible betrayal of a man who was once part of great sports moments. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great sports moment. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Lum Wilson Bill Jackson performing I bent my gun in a circle and shoot him around the hill in 1941. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from 105.3 The Fan's Call of the Texas Rangers' 14-inning battle against the Detroit Tigers. And why would I play you that specific slice of heroic Arlington cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was one of the biggest sporting events on July 19th, 2010, and that was the day that Lawrence and Wright disappeared, leading to a nine-day search in a seven-year unsolved murder case. On this episode, drug cartels, million-dollar contracts, murder, betrayal, and Lawrence and Wright. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. July 19th, 2010, Collierville, Tennessee. Lawrence and Wright was pissed. And this is not the rendezvous he was expecting. This is not how this is supposed to go down. He turned around and began to walk away. And though he was pissed off, he was also more than a little sketched out. He didn't know what the pair behind him were packing. A pair that Lawrence and now had his back turned to. He quickened his pace. Footsteps followed closely behind, and Lawrence tried to remain calm. He slid his cell phone out of his pocket and nearly fumbled it in his hands. He punched in 911. The outgoing call started to buzz. Pick up, come on, pick up. More buzzing. And then, the sound of guns erupting behind him. And there was no time to figure out if the shots were a warning or if they were aimed directly at him. His body was still intact for the moment. He broke out into a run, his feet sliding through the muddy field below, moving like the athlete he was, or used to be. Lawrence and Wright might have washed out of the NBA a few years prior, but he was sure he could outrun the pair behind him. 
at least make it to the fence that he was closing in on before they caught up. And if he got there and got over, he'd be home free. He didn't dare to look back. Every second, every step was crucial. He was back on the hardwood, his kicks squeaking on the parquet, gliding, getting closer. Just one leap over the chain link in front of him and he'd be safe. His phone stopped buzzing and the dispatcher picked up. Lorenzen didn't hear a word coming from the other end of the line. He slipped and more shots rang out. And they echoed through his phone's receiver and crackled on the dispatcher's end. Hello, hello. All the 911 dispatcher could hear were gunshots ringing out in succession. Repeated pops, silence, and then the line went dead. Four days later, Lorenzen's mother filed a missing persons report. Nobody had seen him in days. Friends and family searched the usual spots, but found nothing. No clues and no leads. Lawrence and Wright had disappeared completely. The night before he vanished, Lorenzen was at his ex-wife's house. Shara yelled at him. He yelled back, and then he stormed off. Shara said he left for the pocket full of cash, which she thought curious for a dude who was on the ropes financially. Shara further speculated the cash was for a drug deal. She suspected this because she heard Lorenzen talking on the phone to someone about flipping something for a $100,000 payday. But with that much risk comes danger. Collierville, Tennessee is just over a 20-minute ride from downtown Memphis. And Memphis is no stranger to violent crime. So it would come as no surprise if someone as recognizable as Lawrence and Wright was targeted, especially if he was knowingly entering that world. Lawrence and Wright, one of Memphis's most famous sons, a hometown kid who did good, a model for the community, a shining example of what you could achieve through dedication. Lorenzen was a legendary high school player in the area and also starred at the local college basketball powerhouse, the University of Memphis. He was a first-round pick in the 1996 NBA draft. A solid career saw him survive 13 campaigns in the league, including five seasons with his hometown Memphis Grizzlies. He also built a life outside of basketball. He and Shara had six children, and he gave back to his community. He was generous, caring, and never forgot where he came from. When Lorenzen stepped away from the game, however, a year prior to his disappearance, things started to spiral. He had been generous, but maybe too generous. He helped friends and family with business and housing expenses, paid for vehicles and loans, and made sure the people in his circle were well taken care of. But by 2010, his financial situation was rapidly becoming desperate, and the checks from the NBA had long since dried up. He lost houses and cars, and he struggled to pay child support to his now ex-wife. It wouldn't be so shocking to think that Lorenzen was simply doing what he had done on the court for his entire life, just trying to make a play, hoping to net a quick payday to alleviate some of that financial burden, even if it was only momentary. But it seemed that intention was the reason he was now missing. And the cops, well, they had nothing to go off but a short, muffled voice recording from the 911 dispatch. And the city of Memphis, the Grizzlies, and the state of Tennessee all offered cash rewards for any information about Lawrenson's whereabouts. 
No one ever claimed that bounty. And the case seemed to be a dead end. Days turned into a week. Until at last, a discovery was made. A gruesome, bone-chilling discovery. One that would open up a case that would go unsolved for nearly a decade. The night was hot. Atlanta in the middle of the summer is unbearable during the day and the evenings aren't much better. And that heat can make you agitated and it can mess with your mind. But heat was the last thing on the minds of the two men now standing outside of Lawrence and Wright's A-Town condo. All they could think about was the cold steel in their hands, about what they were to do and, well, shit, if they really wanted to do it if they were really prepared to take a man's life for a little cash. The answers to these questions remained open-ended throughout their nearly six-hour drive from Memphis. But now that they were here, they were even less sure. A car rolled through the condo complex's parking lot, and the two men turned away from view. Fuck. Okay, if they were going to do something, they had to do it now. It was gonna be easy, right? That's what their contacts said anyway. Two guys, fully loaded weapons, against one dude who had no idea what was coming. Even if he was a one-time pro athlete, they had the upper hand. They'd get the jump on him, no problem. And what about the body? What would they do with the stiff once they'd done the job? That was a question for future them. The two gunmen, in the present, steadied themselves. They traced the wall of the condo's exterior, looking for an entry point. There, an unlocked window. They quietly pulled the window up, removed the screen, and then slid their bodies through the opening. And they were careful to step quietly once inside, listening closely for any sound. And their palms itched as the cold grips of the pistols rubbed against their skin. Then they saw him, a man sleeping on the couch, just like their contact said. This was it. And they stepped through the darkened room towards the sleeping man, guns raised. And then they froze in their tracks. This was not the guy they were looking for, not the guy they were there to kill. This was not Lawrence and Wright. Where Lawrence and Wright was, they had no clue. The two gunmen bailed, hightailed it back to Memphis, back to the place they would find Lawrence in just a few weeks later the same place he would disappear from, just gone, seemingly into thin air, for nine days. Nine days. How the hell was that possible? Lawrence and Wright had been a pillar of the community for two decades. He wasn't the type of dude to just up and disappear. Well, okay, maybe once or twice, but he was always easy to get a hold of. And he was reliable because he was determined to be present in the lives of his six children. The first sign that something was wrong was when he missed the flight he was supposed to be on. He never made the plane, and his mom called everyone she knew. And those people called other people, and word got around. Still nothing. 
The cops' ears perked up when they talked to Shara, Lorenzen's ex-wife. She told them that in the last few weeks, a couple of men with guns came to her door, looking for Lorenzen, and that men also approached her son at school to ask about his father. And then there was the thing about the cash. Shara couldn't help but think about the money Lorenzen had on him that night, leaving her house after they got into an argument, saying something on his phone about a quick come up. And by 2010, Lawrence and Wright needed a quick come up. Life had become one big hustle to serve one end goal, replenish the dwindling bank accounts. All the dough he made playing ball was long gone. The money, the phone call, those guys packing guns. It all painted a picture that Lawrence was caught up with the wrong crowd. Just a few years prior, Lawrence was questioned by the FBI in connection with Bobby Cole a notorious cocaine dealer in Memphis who moved millions of dollars in powder during the mid-2000s. Back then, the feds wanted to know about two cars that Lorenzen had sold coal for cash, cars that the feds had found, only to discover that they were registered in Lorenzen's name. And that was just the beginning. The real problem was that the man Lorenzen supposedly sold the cars to, Bobby Cole, he was just a cog in a bigger machine a machine run by a guy named Craig Petties. Craig Petties was deeply entrenched with the Mexican drug cartel. He had a known history, a history of brutality when it came to those who he felt did him wrong. Informants, the opposition, whoever. If he fucked over Craig Petties, his revenge was swift and merciless. Between 2002 and 2007, Craig Petties remotely orchestrated the killings of at least four men and the feds were pretty sure he had a hand in even more. Connecting the dots between Lawrence and Wright and drug cartel muscle was easy. What was becoming increasingly difficult was figuring out where the hell Lawrence and Wright was days after his disappearance. And that frantic 911 call he placed to the Germantown Police Department had been, to put it lightly, mishandled. His family eventually filed a federal complaint claiming that the police had their internet access revoked for misuse at the time, making it nearly impossible to pinpoint the source of the call. While that may or may not have been true, what was true was that no cruisers were sent to investigate the scene. Shara eventually sued the on-duty dispatchers and officers a year later, claiming that their failure to disclose Lawrenson's call to the proper authorities in a timely manner directly led to his disappearance. And while that may or not have been true, what was true was that the Memphis Police Department didn't conduct its own investigation until a few days after the 911 call came in. Shara and Lawrenson's parents both sued the city of Collierville, claiming that Lawrenson's case was not being taken seriously enough. And while that also may or may not have been true, what was true was that Lawrenson Wright had been found. Nine days after the 911 call, a canine unit found the one-time world-class athlete's body riddled with bullets, practically beyond recognition, decomposing in a Tennessee swamp in the blistering late July heat. The man who had once weighed well over 225 pounds was now a corpse of only 57. The horrendous scene sent shockwaves through Lawrenson's family and community. And the story was international news, but every lead still led to a dead end. 
For nearly a decade, the case went unsolved. Did Lorenzen owe money to someone? Someone dangerous? Or was it the cartel? Or was it random violence? The longer the case was cold, the more people speculated. Until the truth finally reared its ugly head. And when it did, it was more disgraceful than anyone could have possibly imagined. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Shara Wright checked her phone. He would be here any minute. Not Lawrence. Well, Lawrence was coming over too, but it was Billy she was really looking forward to seeing. When Billy was with her, everything was okay. At least, that's what she told herself. Billy Ray Turner had been there for Shara Wright for quite some time now. Ever since they met at church, Cheryl was vulnerable. Her marriage to Lawrence had been slowly dissolving for years, and she was gutted by the prospect that he'd been unfaithful. And here she was, raising six kids, while he was traveling around the country doing whatever the hell he wanted. She was so suspicious of adultery that in the early 2000s, according to Lawrence's assistant, she left him quote-unquote concerning voicemails, threatening voicemails. It seemed Shara was the jealous type. Others claimed that Shara herself was unfaithful, but that didn't fit into her particular narrative. Shara's jealousy was made worse by the fact that her ex now had a younger girlfriend. And then there was the issue of finances. When Lawrence had finished playing, he and Shara split, and money suddenly became an issue for the first time since he was drafted. No money meant that he couldn't pay alimony or child support. No money meant that he was doing whatever he needed to do to get cash. And maybe that was selling dope or running dope for someone else, someone powerful. At least that's what Shara was suspecting. Whatever it was, Shara convinced herself it was bad news, which meant that sooner or later, bad news was gonna spill into her life. However, no matter how bad things got, there was always this deep physical connection between the two of them that kept bringing them back together at least for a romp here or there. Maybe it was their shared history or their shared children, but rendezvous that were romantic in nature were not uncommon. That's how Shara got Lawrence into her place that night. July 19th, 2010. She knew he was in town, in Collierville, and she knew it wouldn't be uncommon to suggest a meetup. Lawrence took the bait. He had no idea that this wasn't their regular kind of meetup that this other guy, Billy Ray Turner, would be there. The man who made things right for Shara, who would do whatever it took to make Shara happy. And tonight, what it took was to carry out the plan Shara had been cooking for months. Murder her ex-husband. And make it look like a drug deal had gone horribly off the rails. And then collect the million dollar life insurance policy. They'd even take the cash he had on him. It was hers by right, Lawrence and Oder, had for months. Did he really expect her to raise six kids without his assistance? That's what she told herself. That's how she justified what she was about to do. Lawrence was shocked when he arrived and saw Billy there with Shara. This wasn't a booty call. This was not about pleasure. This was about pain. Lawrence and Wright panicked. And then he ran. 
Shara and Billy were in hot pursuit, but they couldn't catch up to him. He was too fast. Plus, they'd seen him take his phone out of his pocket. He was most certainly dialing 911, and they had to end this now. Then the barrel of a gun rose out of the darkness. Shots shattered through the Memphis night. Shells littered the ground. Silence fell over the field where they had been running, and a hand reached down to pick up Lawrenson's phone, and a finger ended the 911 call. Lawrenson lay in the mud, dead. His body was moved from the crime scene, a few miles away to a swamp in another Memphis suburb. And the murder weapon was ditched in northern Mississippi Lake. The crime scene was cleaned. Then, they waited. Days turned into a week. The questions kept coming for Shara Wright. She kept deflecting. She recited her story over and over. Lawrenson was caught up in drugs and dangerous people. Lawrenson left her house that night with a plan to make some money. His family wasn't buying it. He missed his sister's baby shower. He hadn't seen his kids in days. It was very unlike him. Shara told him not to worry. Disappearing like this? It was just something that Lawrenson did from time to time. She worked hard to sell her story. But when Lawrenson's body was finally found, it quickly became clear that Shara Wright's story was actually Shara Wright's carefully crafted side of the story. The prosecutor pushed play on the cassette deck. And the tape played, and the sound of gunshots, a man grunting and struggling, and then a concerned voice on the other end of the line. Hello? Hello? And the prosecutor stopped the playback. That tape, the 911 recording of the murder of Lawrence and Wright, was part of the prosecution's opening statement. Five years after both Shara Wright and Billy Ray Turner had been arrested and charged with murder, the case was once again in a courtroom. And once again, the involved parties were trying to pin the murder on each other. At first, Shara and Billy's plan seemed like it was going to work. And the cops were really interested in Lawrence's involvement with cocaine dealer Bobby Cole, the guy who was connected to the ruthless Craig Petty's, a man with strong ties to the Mexican drug cartel they chased that lead forever. But eventually it came to a dead end, and the case dragged on. Small pieces of evidence kept rolling in. Meanwhile, Shara collected that life insurance policy. She spent the million in short order, and then flaunted her wealth in interviews. In 2015, five years after Lawrenson's murder, she even published a novel about an unfaithful NBA star and his victim of a wife. No shit. The questions, however, persisted. Was Shara Wright really innocent? Did she have any part in Lawrenson's death? A Fox News reporter asked her that last question point blank. She had a lot to say in her response, but one word she did not utter was no. And then, in November of 2017, FBI drivers found the gun that had been ditched in a northern Mississippi lake. Seven years after Lawrence's death, when it seemed like the case would never be solved, things started to move quickly. Billy Ray Turner and Shara Wright were both arrested and charged with murder. A third person, 
Shara's cousin, Jimmy Martin, was also implicated. Jimmy Martin was the one who revealed where the gun was. He did this because he was seeking immunity, seeing as he was already serving time on another murder case and wanted to avoid further implications. Jimmy also said he helped clean the murder scene, but he didn't fess up to pulling the trigger. He said he wasn't there when the killing was done. That was all Shara and Billy. In his testimony, Jimmy said Shara told him that herself. In 2019, Shara, under pressure from a legal full-court press, entered a plea deal that was described as coming out of left field. The deal saw Shara admitting to facilitating the murder, but not firing any shots herself. It meant she ducked a life sentence. It meant parole would be possible within the decade. It also meant that Billy would now bear the weight of the case. Three years later, in 2022, Billy Ray Turner was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Lawrence and Wright. Billy denied it, said he didn't pull the trigger. Just like Jimmy, Billy said he wasn't present at the murder scene and that there was no romantic relationship between himself and Shara. Billy's testimony directly conflicted with what Shara told her attorneys and with Jimmy Martin's story as well. In 2023, Billy reached out to a Memphis TV station to say that Jimmy Martin and his friends were the triggermen because, come on, how else would Jimmy know where the murder weapon was? The truth is in there somewhere, but the accepted narrative in this still evolving case, at least for the moment, is that Billy Ray Turner killed Lawrence and Wright. Lawrenson's memorial was held at the Memphis Grizzlies home arena, the FedEx Forum. The services were a reflection of who Lawrenson was and what he meant to his community. The parking lots were filled Traffic could easily be mistaken for game day gridlock. And the thousands of lives touched by Lawrence and Wright came to pay their respects to one of the city's most famous sons, taken in an instant by a combination of greed, anger, and jealousy. Lawrence was betrayed by the person he'd shared most of his adult life with, who then in turn seemed to betray the people she'd organized that deception with. What actually happened on the night of July 19th may never be known. Lawrence and Wright reached astonishing highs on the court. He lived the life of a big-time NBA baller, and he had the houses, the cars, the jewelry. When athletes reach that kind of peak, some people start looking for something from them. And even when the cash is all gone, people still want something. In the case of Lawrence and Wright, they took the only thing he had left, his life. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcasts because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. It's a show of guys.